Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. There's been some progress since the hashtags Oscars So White and Me Too shone a spotlight on power imbalances in Hollywood. The Academy has pledged to double women and minority members by 2020. But recent research suggests that the picture behind the scenes may be far worse than that on screen. The latest definitive Annenberg report found that only 6% of top directors in the last decade had been black, compared with 16% of lead actors. Only 3% of directors were Asian, and only 4% were women. So this week we're asking, how does the director's chair become more diverse? Chiwetel Ejiofor earned his dramatic stripes on the West End stage, with an Olivia award-winning turn as Othello. On screen, he's played a drag queen in Kinky Boots and a Marvel supervillain in Doctor Strange. Along the way, he picked up an Oscar nomination for Best Actor as Solomon Northup in 12 Years a Slave. Having chalked all that off, he's now stepped behind the camera for the first time to direct a feature film, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. It's the true story of William Kamkwamba, a young Malawian boy who saved his community from famine by teaching himself to build a windmill. Chiwetel Ejiofor, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. Great to be here. So tell me why you chose this story, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, for your first feature as a director. One's first choice there is kind of hang around for a while. So why this one? Yeah, I um, well, I read the book coming up to 10 years ago now, and um, when it first came out, and I was just sort of stunned by William's story. I was, uh, I was sort of amazed by it on a number of different levels. I just thought it was a very rich tale, obviously very hopeful, very inspiring. You know, William Kamkwamba and his family in these very difficult circumstances, almost unimaginably hard circumstances of this um, flooding and then a, and then a drought, a kind of double whammy, and um, and this potential famine in this region. And I was deeply inspired by this story. I thought it was a remarkably optimistic story. His tenacity, his his striving, um, what it says about education and technology and science of progress. You know, all of these things I thought were very rich. And then. I also was sort of engaged with the other layers of this story and the other layers of his sort of family dynamic, but also the sort of geopolitics, if you like, the, the nature of um, of climate change, the nature of uh, deforestation, the nature of the a- economic situation that he was in and that had a global impact. You know, that very basic list of, of what this film is about and what it brings up and turns around just reminds me what a very unusual and challenging choice it is. Mm. You use the word rich, but you could also say this is actually a very complex things going on here, but it also has to come to life as, as a film. Did you have any worries about how you'd get over that hurdle, particularly on a directorial debut? 
Well, I think that the the process for me was one of developing the, the film and developing the script over a, a, a period of time and working with various people who came on board at different stages, you know, to um, to work on the film. And so the heart of the film and working on that kind of those dynamics, those family dynamics, those interpersonal dynamics, but also then teasing out all of the kind of other layers of the film as well and working that through in a development process that took a while and going back to Malawi a lot and going back and forth to Malawi a lot. I, I first went out to Malawi not long after reading the book, um, you know, 2010, 2011, which is when I met William Kemkwamba and he showed me around his village and also took me around the sort of wider region of Kasungu, which is where his family is in Malawi. And so I got a, you know, started to get a bit of an understanding of the place. And actually filming in the real village of the story is quite unusual because one frequently used short cultures for films set in Southern Africa is filming in South Africa, which has a big film industry. It has the infrastructure in place. Why did you go a different route? Well, I very quickly sort of wanted to have this sense of when I read the book, you know, one of the things I think that that really touched me was just the that, that authentic dynamic, just that real sense of place and very specifically um, a sense of place. So for me, I was always engaged with trying to um, to bring an audience into that that kind of dynamic into that kind of reality and uh, and that kind of authenticity to to potentially have that that, that sort of teleportation experience is how I described it back then and, and continue to that, that Alice in Wonderland <laughs> slipped down the rabbit hole and you're in a completely different space, but it has to be internally consistent. And so to hold the full integrity of the piece, you know, it's, it seemed to me that it was very important to shoot in Malawi to, to actually be in the authentic place. You know? I think you had to be quite creative or your teams had to be quite skillful and creative to make that work. Any memories of that? Well, yeah. I mean, the the logistics were complicated, you know, and so we had to bring in, we were bringing in equipment and personnel from, from various different places, but a lot from South Africa and a lot from Kenya. And um, and that's, you know, crossing borders, that's all these kind of logistical time constraints, all of these things that come into play. And um, and so, yeah, people had to be creative with that. Uh, there was some equipment that didn't arrive when we needed it. And, you know, it was just, it was stuck on some border or something else. And Dick Pope, you know, was really Really taking the brunt of those things uh, as the cinematographer and uh, and being creative about things and really protecting me in many ways from having to sort of sweat about all of the sort of details of that, but wanting to get the images that we wanted to get. You know, I'm smiling because I'm going to recommend to you a quite seminal economist piece by my colleague Robert Guest hmm. uh, when he was working in Africa, which is about the difficulty of getting goods across borders in Africa, in which he set off with a barrel of beer to cross a number of a truckload of beer to sort of find out what was left of it by the, the time, time you got to it. So you will know that yeah. scenario no, uh, no, exactly. up close. The young Maxwell Simba plays William, uh, the, the lead character here, a non-professional lead. I think it's not really fair to say non-professional actor because he can certainly act. And, but that does now seem to be part of, of a trend. It, it's there in Cohen's uh, Roma as well. Is it something that you think is particularly important to, to this work? 
Well, not really. I mean, not in that sense. You know, not in the fact that I um, that I was selecting somebody because they hadn't acted before. I was looking at uh, a whole host of people, and uh, and I was uh, I would have been very delighted to to, to choose somebody who had uh, experience on film and whatever. But I, my concern and my focus was really just trying to find the right person in whatever guise that would that would arrive in. We were in schools auditioning people, you know, in various countries and trying to find somebody who could really capture. William Kamkwamba and his and his energy and his his sort of um, tenacity, I think. And, and it's also made entirely in Chichiwa, the language, that part of Malawi. I think we're going to hear a clip of your character preparing William for his first day at, at secondary school. <laughs> One Malawian writer, uh, Rabson Kondoi, has griped a bit about accents and not hiring local actors, mm. given that both, uh, both uh, you and Simba were from outside Malawi. What do you make of that? Oh, well, we certainly auditioned plenty of people in Malawi, and, and it would have been fantastic to, you know, to have had a full cast of Malawi. Actors Lily Banda, um, who plays Annie, is a crucial part of the film, plays my daughter in the film, is from Malawi, as is Philbert, who plays Gilbert in the film. But we couldn't cast everybody, because you are trying to cast, you know, according to the characters, and to try and cast the best people to play those parts. And sometimes that isn't as easy as when there is a, a major kind of acting you know world you know which there isn't actually specifically in in Malawi so we did have to reach outside of that and and learn the language and uh, and obviously that comes with its with slight consequence of not it not being a perfect accent and so on and there's no way that in that sort of time myself or Maxwell would have been able to do the accent perfectly but we did do the best we can and and the hope is that people who do speak to Chua who are fluent in Chua can also see that that was the attempt to do it to to create an authentic experience for the audience who may not be as familiar with Chichua as they are and they might be able to sort of see past that to us really trying to deliver William Kamkwamba's story to a, to a global audience. And do you think audiences are becoming more open to foreign language films, particularly languages that they just won't have encountered before, not just art house French movies in this case? Um, again, Quaron and, and, and Roma got a lot of attention that way. You, you obviously felt very confident that you could do this and bring a kind of audience that you would want to, to bring to this. Would you have felt so confident a few years ago? I mean, maybe, um, maybe, maybe not. You know, I, I do feel that there is a there is an appetite and 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 a thirst for uh, as as much of an authentic experience as one can get, and that I think is about point of view. The telling a story and seeing a film that is inside the perspective and the point of view of the characters going through something like this, you know, is um, I think is increasingly engaging to an audience. And I think as the um, as sort of there's that sort of wider world of sort of streaming platforms and uh, and these kinds of stories are able to get out there and find audiences, you know, um, I think people are. M- are much more engaged with that kind of, you know, authentic portrayal and those authentic points of view. And that move from acting to directing, easy bridge to cross, a lot of thought went went into it, I'm sure. But I mean, is it is it the way that you thought it would be when you move from being 
one side of the camera to the other. Well, it's a steep learning curve. I mean, that is true. It's, um, you know, there was a lot to sort of do. But uh, but again, I think that the process of spending the time that I had and the time that I took over several years and that process of people coming sort of on board the film, you know, refined and detailed the script stages of the film and that development process to a point whereby you know, one really starts to kind of understand and has a, a lot, many several years of investment in the process at a certain point. And that does improve the kind of confidence with which one goes out to Malawi or anywhere to, to make the film ultimately, because you've really sat with it and investigated with various different people every aspect of the story over several years. You gain some control, but you lose something as well. Well, I think it depends on who your collaborators are. You know that uh, that the that the hope is, and in this case, I think it was really really worked out in this way that the people that you're working with have ideas that they bring to the table that aren't you know sort of dictating things, but are opening up areas of of conversation and bringing in their own experiences and their own understanding of film and their own respect of the kind of process of that and the director's process and the writer's process and and also the actor's process. You know, um, so it is a kind of a collaborative energy over that period of time, and uh, and that's really what we, that's what we encountered, I think, and, and what we found. I think there was an interview shortly after Twelve Years a Slave won Best Picture uh, award. This sort of peak, really, I suppose, sort of crowning the the great success you had with that film. When you were asked quite a lot about racial bias in the industry, and I might be wrong, but I think you sometimes began to irk you because I think some of your responses <laughs> right, su- <did> they get? <laughs> suggested <laughs> suggested you'd rather talk about something else. Am I right, or has that changed? Um, no, I don't know. I think that uh, it's always an important question, and, uh, and I, I wonder, I mean, I don't know. I suppose for me, there are different times when it's more or less appropriate, you know. I've certainly been in circumstances where I felt people were just sort of angling for their own angle on, you know, that whatever piece they were writing and so on, which can be a bit annoying if it's not really a genuine investigation into what is happening or the state of the industry, but a kind of shortcut to a headline. So, but I think if it's if there is there's genuine interest and, and a genuine conversation is possible, then I think it's a, a great thing to talk about. Yeah. I think you said at the time I can't speak on those things. I haven't thought about it that much. But now, of course, you're in a very different position. Your career has moved on. You're doing your next uh, project. Has your view settled into anything particular, or have you come up with new challenges? Well, I suppose in the context of racial bias, you know, that I feel like it is a societal issue, you know, racial bias. And, and it is something that, um, as, as is gender bias, you know, that, mm. that is something that we are going to wrestle with and continue to wrestle with um, in order to create more equal systems of, uh, of, uh, of social systems and, and employment systems and so on. You know, it isn't something that just affects the, um, the film industry, of course. It, it affects things in a much more sort of wider and sort of general way. What would you change more of, especially knowing what you know now from both both ends of the process? Well, I think it's it's actually just, I think it's a process of education. You know, I think it's a process of people understanding, first of all, that there is such a thing as these kind of unconscious biases that um, that allow them to choose and to select people on basis that, that are 
uh, often unconsciously, sometimes consciously as well, but sometimes, you know, and often unconsciously working in the favor of certain people over certain people. And and that is um, something that is very much a part of our society. So I feel like that actually being aware of those things and having some focus in those things and those in that direction does positively influence the change. I have a, a great faith and an optimism in, in terms of people. And I feel that when people are kind of aware of certain things, you know, that they do make adjustments in order to make things fairer on the whole. I mean, obviously, there are exceptions. But on the whole, I think people do do that. And I feel like sometimes the nature of unconscious bias is that it is exactly that. And, and that is a very kind of insidious part of all of the conversations that, that we can have. So what's changed? That's all you and Othello. I think we worked out it was 2007. You were at the, the Donmar Theatre yeah, in London playing that. Absolutely, you know, it was still a pretty freshly minted you know, young actor then, playing that role, fraught with questions about race. Mm-hmm. What, what's changed? And, and when you look back on that time, do you see different attitudes, different biases, conscious or otherwise, or anything that we have actually changed? Well, I think the conversation is becoming richer. That's what I think that's the sort of the, the main thing. And I think that people are moving away a little bit from sort of this a kind of an easy fix mentality. There is no easy fix in a way, you know, that it is a, a concentrated effort and it's going to take a, a, a long time. It's a sort of a generational uh, choice. You know, certain attitudes are very fixed, you know, um, they're very fixed attitudes and they're going to take a while to shift. And so I feel that there are times where people have kind of tried to sort of um, brush things under the carpet or they've tried to kind of uh, apply a kind of easy solution to things where if the if like a data solution like if the numbers match in this way then everything's fine but actually there's much more kind of underneath it that is psychological that is about the way that bias is pervasive in the society and the way in which you through education and through understanding and through empathy and through different cultural influences uh, as well as educational influences are able to evolve uh, points of view that then include other people in a full way not that you're doing something good quote unquote but that you are naturally engaged with other people, their lifestyles, and want Mm -hmm. them in your immediate environment. And looking back, do you feel that there were opportunities that were denied to you because of the colour of your skin? Well, I don't know. That's a kind of, I mean, that's a sort of, I don't know because I didn't do those roles and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know exactly. It's hard to say exactly what would be different. What I do know is that in in a general context, and this is also the distinction between being a successful individual actor and trying to use that sense of being a successful individual actor to explain whether a system is beneficial or, or negative. I've had incredible fortune in my acting career and great moments mm-hmm. in my acting career, but I can still say that I think the system overall is unfair to yeah. black actors. And I think that's I was thinking about something, and you know, this is off the top of my head, and it may not at all suit your experience, about something like the male white romantic lead, which is still, it still feels like it's sort of overwhelming. You know, we've got a picture in our our mind's eye of the Oscar season uh, around us now, when we we look at that at the kind of rom com, for instance. I don't know. That's just an example. Yeah, sure. I think there are. I mean, hundreds of those kinds of examples, absolutely, that are. 
images that we have, that we have become accustomed to over the entire history of cinema and, and, and a lot of theatre, you know, generations of theatre, that, that have imprinted certain roles to be within the concepts of certain people. And that's exactly one of them, the, the white romantic lead. And yes, and I think that that is obviously something that, um, that is very difficult to kind of break down. And it's not a question of just, uh, like I say, it's not a sort of data arrangement that breaks those things down. It's actually how society involves to include other people in that dynamic. So that is a sort of a welcomed or, or natural occurrence as opposed to a kind of imposed thought. And you've worked with some of the great directors of the last decades. I'm thinking of 12 years a slave. Steve McQueen, Spitely on Inside Man. How much power do you think directors have to change the status quo? Are they stepping up to it? I think directors have a lot of power and, and have a and have a lot of influence and can very much sort of lead the conversation in several ways. But I think it's about how films are produced, uh, the nature of the audiences that are uh, being invited to come to the uh, to the productions and and to see the films or the TV shows or the plays, and the diversity of those audiences as well, and whether that's something that is actively encouraged or whether it's not particularly encouraged, and um, and those are the sort Sort of levels of that we can kind of play with, you know. Um, those are things that I think theatre has tried to push for a more diverse audience, and of course, a more diverse audience and people being actively encouraged to come to the theatre then has an effect on what those audiences want to see and who they include in that context. Actually, you preempted my next question. Will we see you back on the stage again? I was thinking of you in uh, fetching doublet and hose. I mean, would that still? attract you now. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I always look forward to being on stage and it's actually been a few, it's been a couple of few years now. It's been three three years and that's always about as much as I can take of not being on stage. So I'm very much looking at um, uh, getting back on stage. What and, you uh, got your eye on? Uh, well, a couple of things. It's a bit early to say. but um, There's only a few of us around you can see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Agent <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. screaming blue murder outside. Um, and if you went back to the National Youth Theatre, which is just such a huge sporting ground of, of British talent, also trying to open its doors a, a bit more widely. What advice would you have now for young people going into acting or directing, particularly those from underrepresented groups? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's uh, a great question. I think that the, um, you know, it's always that's the sort of struggle to kind of to push and to be as uh, as engaged with the work as you can be, and that nature of it being so vocational, I think, and that uh, and that really the doing it is all, you know, and so really exploring those avenues. I would have. Um, I would have encouraged myself if I was talking to myself when I was 16 to have, you know, I was very fortunate, like I say, to be able to craft a career um, from a quite an early age in many ways. But the... Um, but I would have also encouraged myself to be sort of writing earlier and to be getting in involved in the kind of production side of things as early as possible, because that is also a very uh, it's a very strong way of taking a sizable amount of control over the kind of the, the product and not just relying on that on those kind of fortunate breaks, you know, because some people get them, some people don't. But uh, and, you know, you can be sort of left by the wayside a tiny bit uh, if if you're not sort of actively involved in things. And I think. That that would probably be the advice I'd give myself. Multi-skill. Multitask, yeah. Multitask. Multilingual as well. <laughs> exactly. Sure, Tyler, thank you very much for joining us thank today. Thank you. Pleasure. 
and The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind is on Netflix from March the 1st. So, what do you reckon? Can the director's chair be democratised? And how will that change what we all see on the silver screen? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or tweet us at Economist Radio. And please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.